0: Be thou diligent to know the state of thy flocks, and look well to thy herds, for riches are not forever, and doth the crown endure to every generation. The hay appeareth, and the tender grass showeth itself, and herbs of the mountains are gathered. The lambs are for thy clothing, and the goats are the price of the field, and thou shalt have goat's milk enough for thy food, and for the food of thy household, and for the maintenance for thy handmaidens. Proverbs 27 Verses twenty-three through twenty-seven.
1: Welcome to a word fitly spoken. I'm your host Zelwyn Heide here today with David Bukes to talk about agriculture and the way that we should look at it as Christians. David, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks, Zelwyn. How about you? I'm doing well. It's a a kind of a a nice day here out on the, the prairies. Things are starting to cool off, which, you know, always makes me a little bit happier because I kind of like it when, you know, when it gets to be fall and the days are a little colder. Of course, I also like winter, but that's just me. But what about over there in your, your neck of the woods?
0: We're in the same boat. It's, you know, Minnesota is a great place as the seasons change. Fall is so welcome. And it, we had a really difficult summer with drought. But over the last several weeks, we've made up substantially in the rain. And so people are cutting hay. And the grass is growing and it's cool and comfortable at night. It's, a, it's really, it's a beautiful time in Minnesota.
1: Yeah, we had a storm not that long ago where we got at least a couple of inches of rain, which was like almost more than we'd had all year. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 or at least it seemed like it. Of course, it also brought some pretty substantial hailstones. But the grass greened up substantially as a result. I mean, my, I had to start cutting my yard again. <laughs> you know i i was able to at least quit for a while there cuz it was so dry but now it was yeah it, it is what it is but no i I'm, I'm very thankful for the things that we have received
0: it's amazing cool. how when uh when you get rain like that how just instantaneously what looks like it's completely dead what looks you know you have given up hope that the grass is going to come back and all of a sudden there it is the next day within hours even it's green and growing amazing
1: <laughs> God's god's creation is wonderful in that way yes yeah. You're probably all wondering, though, where Willie is. Well, he he can't be with us. I think he may have descended back to the hollow Earth again. He needs to answer some more questions. And Lord willing, he'll be back again, hopefully, for our next episode. So we'll see how it goes. But anyway, so we're here today to talk about agriculture and kind of the the way that as Christians we should look at this, and particularly uh, when it comes to husbandry and the care of animals. So what do we mean by husbandry David, you know what you know what exactly are we talking about today?
0: Yeah, I mean we're talking about something that is has become very unfamiliar in our world. I live in rural central Minnesota and so it's a it's a farming community. There is within the living memory of, of folks around here a time when every household had, you know, their laying hens and every household was butchering pigs in the fall. But that's you know that 's like thirty forty years ago, and it's even further ago for lo- other parts of the country, so um, we're talking about something that's that's become very unfamiliar, but was at one time very familiar to folks that the source of your food comes from animals that have been cared for with wisdom and with with concern for their health and for what they're going to produce your family, your family, and the folks around you relying on the output so we're talking about how how farmers or how folks who are raising animals uh, take care of them f- to, to supply their needs.
1: Yeah, I know that around in this part of the world, in central North Dakota, uh, it used to be known for its dairies. Every f- uh, fa- family around here used to have dairy cows. There's, But it's really gone down quite a bit so that only a few do. I mean, if you go to like New Salem on the interstate, if you've ever driven through North Dakota, you'll see the great big dairy cow. You know, there used to be a... A pride that went with the, the the dairy industry in this area, but it is something that has become, as you say, more in living memory than in actual reality. I mean, I see a couple of herds here and there, but it's nothing like what it used to be. And I mean, even with uh, something like chickens and and pigs and that sort of thing, I mean, we have chickens here at the parsonage, but that's about it. I mean, most people, I think, are probably even getting away from that, mostly because we live in a society where our food is more readily provided for us via other means, right? It, through the grocery store, through what, you know, through bulk, or, you know, when you go to the, the, the wholesale stores and stuff like that, that's how we typically get our daily bread. But is there a, what, what can be the dangers inherent with that, David? Why do we talk about this at all?
0: Yeah, I, I I think I mean, I've observed from folks who um, sort of sort of grew up or entered into adulthood at at that kind of transitional time where folks were moving away from like the family farm or, you know, domestic economy in that way. I've heard from many folks that like the appeal is convenience. Right. So we used to do, th- do things that way. Right. We used to do things the hard way. And now here's this easy, convenient way to do things. And I've got nothing against convenience whatsoever. I mean I, I <laughs> like generally speaking convenience is not a bad thing except when it becomes sort of idolized or or placed on a pedestal as the key factor in what makes for, you know, good food or uh, a good economy. Convenience which plays into like this consumeristic mentality that we that we sort of live and breathe in America that I want things whenever I want them as quickly as I want them. I mean, Amazon two-day delivery is a marvel and I won't lie. I I have used Amazon two-day delivery a ton, but it has given even our family the sense that like, well, when we really need something or really want something, we can have it just like that. And that's especially problematic because it means that we are giving no thought whatsoever to where these things came from or what cost there was in producing them or what responsibility we might have for their origins or, um, you know, or their, or what happens to them once we've, once we're done with them.
1: Yeah, no. Well, especially as you mentioned, like the, the consumerist kind of mentality that pervades our culture and the, the way that that can cause us to look at agriculture as just being a means to an end, especially when it comes to like global agriculture, like, you know, I want my apples whenever I want them. Normally, like we just had an apple harvest here, what, last month or a month or two ago. And, you know, you'd only normally get those things once a year, right? Because that was part of what it meant for your food to be seasonal, to receive these gifts in a seasonal fashion, because that's when they come into season. But because we have this consumerist demand, we're basically saying, no, I want to have apples (laughs) in the middle of winter. And I don't want to have to store them or can them or do whatever it would take to, to get them. I just want them now. And it's this kind of consumerist mentality that unfortunately has caused us to become disconnected from the land, wouldn't you say?
0: Yeah. And I think it invites a kind of dishonest or fraudulent behavior in, in our economy. So I, I heard a story about something that changed in the peach industry a while back. This would have been, you know, 30, 40 years ago. So, you know, peaches, when you buy peaches, uh, you know, the difference like night and day between a really like a peach that is ripe, like it mm-hmm. is ready to be eaten. And a peach that is like basically, you know, cardboard or, you know, <laughs> biting into a piece <laughs> of styrofoam. It's just like it's night and day. And it used to be that you could really easily tell the difference between a peach that was ripe and a peach that wasn't by sight. But producers, thought, well, you know, we have to ship these things across the country. We have a real problem in doing that. So they, there was research funded for chemicals that could make the peaches look ripe when they were not in fact ripe. And so it's, yeah. I mean, you know, people are happy to have peaches on their shelf that look ripe because they'll gladly buy them. In the meantime, we've sacrificed this, this quality, but underneath that, you know, quality is one thing, but underneath that is sort of the fraudulent behavior, you know, we're be, we, we invite the sale of lesser and lesser quality goods or a deceit about what it is that we're actually receiving, you know? It, and, and I think that, so that's like one facet of the consequences of prioritizing consumer behavior or convenience is that the, the world plays that game very, very well because that's what, Sin is for, you know, it's like for producing convenience as easily as possible. And so, you know, this resonance between what we want and what the world is happy to give us just just produces this, I think, a vicious cycle that we that we now find ourselves in as a as a as a culture and as a society.
1: Sure. Well, and I think even even secular culture, in some sense, has recognized this this problem, because you see the movement of like health foods, uh, you see the movement of like organic foods. Uh, you see, you know, all these different movements that are just trying to say like, you know, oh, let's get back to the land. Let's get back to, you know, something that's fresh or something that's a little bit more connected because they recognize that what our society has done has basically insulated us from where our food comes from. And so we don't really think of our food anymore in terms of gift you know as in the gift of god which you know we are dependent upon for our continued survival we think of it as a commodity that is for my my needs to fulfill my satisfaction right
0: yeah and i think there's an important distinction to make there because like there there's this uh, secular righteousness about food. I, I, I heard this great term once orthorexia. So it's like this, this, this addiction to, <laughs> to eating rightly, right? So you, you, you have to eat properly. And, um, that's, that's vastly different or like, you know, getting, getting back to our roots or, um, regaining the connection to the land or making sure that we know where our food has come from and that is ethically sourced and all of that, that falls flat very, very quickly. If you're not at the same time or more fundamentally thinking about it as a gift from God. Right. So if you are, if you are prioritizing those things, it becomes just another mode of righteousness that's outside of God. And it's something that I'll be honest, a capitalistic consumeristic world plays. uh, That's another game that they play very, very well. Right. So you can go to the store and you can spend a ton more money on organic food. And I'll tell you, somebody's profiting off of that because they know that, (laughs) you you know, it's scratching that itch that everybody's got, you know,
1: (laughs) Now, that's an excellent point, because even if we do see these secular movements away from the consumerist mentality, as you say, without the recognition of where that ultimately comes from in the Lord, it does, I mean, it is hollow. It it is, there's nothing to it. It's basically just another way of saying, I'm better than you, which is a game sin plays very well. But something also that I think is worth talking about here, and maybe has contributed to this general... Problem that we see here is something that we might call a an industrial mindset. Uh, what do we mean by that, David?
0: Yeah, I mean it's a mindset that really. I think one way to put it is that it solves for a single equate a single variable in the equation, and the variable is is output, maximizing output, which is something that you know. Scientific progress and, and mathematics, you know, mathematical advancements. These are these are very good at maximizing for a single variable, and that's what industrialization really is aiming at. How can we how can we maximize our production? With and and what you end up doing in the long run is forgetting what you're even producing for. Like, what's the point of this? I, I see this in in education. The Minnesota Department of Education has talked. I looked at their you know mission statement for what education is for, and it is to produce a. Highly productive workforce. That's what education in Minnesota exists for. But but high, a highly productive workforce is can only ever be a means to another end. And what is like what are we even aim, aiming at? Why are we producing the things that we're producing? And that's what you lose sight of, I think, when you um, when you succumb to industrialization in this way or an industrial mindset in this way.
1: How would we see this industrial mindset playing out in terms of husbandry, in terms of agriculture? Like what? how would that express itself today that would be problematic
0: yeah i think that there is a uh, a very common way of thinking about animals as as you know just sort of another piece of machinery which is, which is parallel to the way that humans are also thought of as just a, you know a system into which you put out inputs and out of which you get outputs i mean i think that there's this you can see this in in humanity with the emphasis on calories as a way of measuring nutrition right so the main mm-hmm. metric is going to be calories or if you want to be a little bit more subtle it's macros you know carbohydrates proteins and fats but that's to think of a human as a machine and these are just a set of inputs that you can put in and out out of it, you'll get something. The same thought has been been prevailing about animals. So these are, you know, the question is how much feed can I give to this animal? How quickly can I uh, put this feed in there? What supplements can I give them to maximize their conversion ratio so that uh, I can give them less feed and have more meat on the animal? How can I minimize the amount of space that's required or the amount of upkeep that's required? How can I medicate these animals so that I don't have to pay. I don't have to worry about sickness or disease. How can I minimize my losses um, in that way? It's all it's all a maximization and minimization problem. And that's so like those are important questions to ask. But when they come at the cost of like disrespecting the nature of a thing, then you run into real problems. So like you don't have to be a member of PETA to recognize that. Animals crammed into a space where they can't move around or flap their wings is there's something wholly unnatural about that, and that's that's sort of the the you know the end result of this kind of industrialization, I think.
1: But how do we, as you put it, how do we see the nature of something then if we're going to approach something in the way that it's intended to be? How do we avoid falling into say just another secular philosophy? How do we avoid just falling into say you know these green movements or something like that, which come at us with, you know, very pagan kind of mindsets, you know, what, how is the Christian, how should the Christian approach something like factory farms or something like that? You know, what are we supposed to do?
0: Yeah, I, I think that that is, that's the right question to ask. And it, I think that obviously the starting place for any question a Christian asks is God's word, right? So what does God mm-hmm. tell us about his design for the world and our use of it? Um, that's got to be our starting place. There is another step which I think is, is trickier, but that we we move from what God's word says to just you know uh, sanctified reason and making observations about the world. So recognizing that you can perceive something about how the world is supposed to work using your God given senses, and uh, but but the starting place is you know how, what God has created it for and what we are to use it for.
1: Okay, so where do we start then?
0: I think that uh, yeah, I think that <laughs> yeah. Gen- Genesis chapter uh, Genesis chapters one through three is our starting place here. So you know, you uh, you back up to the beginning, and when God creates on the sixth day all of the animals, He gives this mandate to Adam and Eve about exercising dominion over it. Genesis chapter one, verse twenty eight. God blessed man and woman. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth, which to a lot of folks sounds like kind of like license, right? I'm in charge. I get to do what I want with whatever it is that I see around me, but it's much more proper to think about a dominion mandate as um, a burden of responsibility, right? So this is now your charge is to care for these things, and it's a charge that came from God so you better take it you better take it seriously well
1: and especially when when we talk about the dominion that expresses itself in other realms too i've been talking with uh, couples you know getting ready for marriage for example and the dominion which is exercised even within marriage i thought it was put very well that you know, dominion is making sure that everyone is taken care of right it's not this. I do what I want. I'm the boss. I'm in charge. Kind of a thing, which unfortunately can lead to this industrialized uh, consumerist mindset, where the the cow or the chicken is just there for my purposes. It's just there to you know, for the chicken to produce as many eggs as possible, and then to be discarded once it's done. Kind of a thing, but rather to say, you know, that this is the charge that we have been given that God wants us to take care of these animals and to, you know, to respect that dominion, to, you know, give them the things which they need as animals and to make sure that they are provided for so that in return, we receive the gifts of God, right? I mean, would you, what would you add to that?
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that the that that the dominion mandate had, brings us responsibility and, and care for whatever's under your domain. And what's, what's interesting about the question about you know like c- how caring for animals is recognizing that they are of they're a, a different category than humans right so you have to attend to the nature of an animal in order to properly care for it right so we end up in all kinds of with all kinds of problems in our world with with people for instance and I, this so you get the letters. I don't know. this. I won't get the letters. But um, <laughs> the, but people who treat their pets like human beings, right? And sure. and that's problematic, not just because it's kind of weird, but because, and if, often it comes at the expense of like caring for the real people in their lives, but because animals are not people. And so the care they need is not the care that a human being needs, right? So neither is their life uh, to be estimated in the same way that a human life is to be estimated. So you end up with, uh, kind of a, oftentimes like a misplaced compassion you know for an animal unwilling to do what is needed for an animal or or to euthanize an animal when the time when their when their life is over right to prolong mm-hmm. their lives you know beyond what is what is uh wholesome because we think of them where they're being thought of as humans, so there's this balancing act between like uh treating them as just dis you know disposable and uh something to be cast aside whenever you see fit or treated like just you know. Uh, another piece of matter, and treating them as we are invited to by Disney cartoons like human beings, right so, so, so we're, we, we ought to find some somewhere in between those two things, I think, in order to do it properly and that's that requires thought and wisdom and that's why that's why we have to talk about you know animal husbandry because it's not i don't I don't know that it's obvious. I think it's actually something you have to you have to work at.
1: Well, now that you're bringing the wrath of the mouse down upon us, (laughs) I think it's time for our first break, so we'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. So we left off in the previous section, David, talking about, we well, starting to talk about what the Bible has to say about these things. And we did mention, at least in passing, you know, that God created all things to be a certain way, that he created them to have a certain nature, as you said, and that we as humanity, as, as man, have a dominion over the rest of creation. But how do we see that dominion, changing so to speak how does it shift as we go forward in the biblical witness
0: yeah i mean i, I obviously as with a lot of things there would sort of be no question about how to live as uh, a, a godly person but for the fall and the fall into sin and we can see the consequences of that fall play out especially uh, as we head towards the story of the flood and in the resolution of the flood genesis chapter 9 We can see some of the ramifications. So, so there's something new that's happening in God's dominion mandate. Something, something that's added. Something that changes. Genesis chapter nine, beginning at verse three. God gives these instructions to Noah. He says, "Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life—that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it, and from man." From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. So so because of the introduction of sin and the prevalence of evil in the world, something has changed. And that now means that God is using the um, animals that he has created in the world to, to feed his people. This is part of the instructions that he's given to Noah now is use the world, use the animals in this way.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in a very specific way that, you know, before the flood, they were not given to man as food. You know, Adam was not permitted to eat them. He had the fruits of the garden. He had the, the fruits of the field. But now because of the change in with the flood and the beginning of the, the recreation of the world, so to speak, although that's a whole totally different subject. <laughs> um, we have the giving, the, the, the shifting of the dominion to include using these animals as a way of sustaining our life. But I think what you're trying to say, David, is that is there something that is unintended, if you will, about this? I mean, you want to be real careful about what you're trying to say, because obviously it's a good thing that God has given to us. God has told us to do this. It is not evil to eat meat. We never want to give in to that kind of a mentality. But there is something that is still... Uh, how how would you put it
0: yeah i I think that that's uh, like how to put it is a tricky thing and i I'm not sure that I have a great answer except to just sort of acknowledge that that for for blood to be spilled uh, at all isn't part of god's original design and and I think that this is evident. We, we see that we can pick this up in Leviticus when when God's talking about sacrifice and when He's prohibiting the people from eating food with the blood, animals with the blood still in it. He is he's ascribing to blood this purpose now of atoning for sin, which it would it wouldn't have had that purpose had there been no sin in the first place. And I, there's something very significant about. I mean, it's it's kind of obviously significant that a life is given for another life, and that's true when it comes to atoning for sin. But it's also true, just generally, for the subsistence of humanity, right? In order for us to live, and this you can see this going back to Genesis chapter three, right? In order for Adam and Eve to be clothed, an animal had to be killed, uh, blood had to be shed, and there's something uh, there's something connected to what you said earlier about God's uh, about God's provision or acknowledging everything as a gift from God. I mean, there's something to pay attention to there in that our subsistence, our life, costs something. It's not It's not free. It costs the life of something else. And it's according to God's grace and mercy that he's given us also now animals to do that, to supply our need, to, to, to fill our bellies and take care of us.
1: So in a sense, before the coming of Christ and his, you know, once for all blood sacrifice, you know, we're not saying that this is continuing even now, in a sense that has changed even now in the New Testament. So there's been a shift again. Yeah. But the recognition that because we are sinners, because we needed to continue so that redemption might come, the life continues to be given until the coming of Christ, right? You know, the the animal lives to sustain um, and all of, and the blood which they are giving in order to prefigure that one blood, which would be shed, right? I mean, and it is that, that life given for life. That is something that is going on there, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and for, you know, for our sort of righteous indignation about consumerism, we can't ever forget that in order for us to live, we do have to consume things, right? Mm-hmm. And that and consumption um, implies, it, you know, implies waste. I mean at least in this in this fallen state of the world, right? The Newton's laws of thermodynamics are accurate, right? Entropy is a problem. There is not increasing <laughs> order in the world uh, according to its its corrupted nature and and that's what I think we see that writ large in what it costs for humans to exist.
1: Right? Right? Well, even even if you want to think in terms of plant life too. I mean, there is something that is being given so that man can continue. I mean, obviously a plant is a very different thing from an animal still, but we have to consider the nature of the plant as well. Yeah. But it is something that is coming from God, given to us so that we might continue. So that it is always this sense of giving that is what is giving us our life. Yeah. But what about uh, when we're talking about in terms of the the blood sacrifice as well? Um, what significance does that have, especially in the Old Testament? And where might we look for something like that?
0: Um. I'm not sure what you mean. Can you can you ask that again?
1: <laughs> I need to I need to word my questions when We're ta- when we're talking about the giving of the, the life of the animal, the the blood being given for atonement, we want to look in a passage like Leviticus, right? That's really yes. what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. Here, so.
0: <laughs> yeah, take a look at Leviticus 17. So you, Leviticus 17, uh, we've just had the Day of Atonement, and here you have this this exemplary moment where a scapegoat is being sent off into Azazel and another goat is being sacrificed for the sins of the people. And uh, in in light of that, God is sort of reining in everyone's ideas about what sacrifice consists of. No, you can't just sacrifice anywhere you want. You have to bring your sacrifices to the entrance of the tent of meeting, because this is where I am promising to deliver the blessings to you, in view of your sacrifice there. Um, but along with that comes this, this prohibition about eating blood. And in, uh, Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, he says, the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And that it's so crucial to observe there that, that there's, it's not something innate about blood, right? It's not that, this combination of molecules or this you know, substance is what atones for sin. But it's the fact that God has given it for this purpose. He has assigned it this purpose. Uh, I mean, sacramentally, he has attached his word and a promise to blood for this purpose. Sure.
1: Well, and, and thinking in terms of dominion there too, when we see Israel offering sacrifices everywhere to, to goat demons, to false gods, all of that sort of thing, I think we see there that same kind of mindset of, you know, dominion run amok. Like, I can do what I want with these animals. You know, I'm going to use them to sacrifice to this false god because it's my animal. I can do what I want with it kind of a thing. Whereas God says, no, that's not why I have given these things to you. I have given these things to you to make atonement, you know, to use that in this way. So I think in in that sense, we see here, too, you know, these, the, the animals, even when they're being used as sacrifices, are not just our, our play things, are not just objects that we use however we please. They are things that are given to us by the Lord for a specific purpose.
0: Yeah, that's, that's bingo, according to God's institution, right? So, I mean, Hophni and Phineas are, are great examples of what, <laughs> you know, like, what's wrong with eating the meat of the sacrifices? is what it's for, you know? Here's a sacrifice, here's some meat, but they do it their own way, and in doing it their own way, which is totally rational, right? Take the best parts for themselves. They're the priests. Go ahead, do it. But it's not according to God's dis- it's institution. It's not what he said to do. And so you don't have, uh, the, the dominion mandate is constrained. Always constrained by the bounds of of God's of God's prescription. He has not made you into God's, but he's made you uh, to be his his icon in the world, and so that means you have to act like him and not not like your <laughs> fallen flesh.
1: <laughs> I I think that's a great way of putting it. You know that the dominion means that we are called to act like God. That there is a. An aspect of holiness that comes with dominion, or at least should come with dominion, so that we as Christians, you know, are called to be Christ-like, even in the way that we relate to the rest of creation. Right? You know, the the creation itself is created for the Lord. It you know is from Him, it is for Him, it is through Him, that sort of thing, and it glorifies Him even in its very existence. Now, for us to come in and say. Oh well, God gave me the creation so that I can just, you know, do whatever I want with it so that I can get as much as I possibly can out of it. Consequences, you know, throw them out the window. Who cares? That's not acting in the in the mind of Christ, right?
0: Yeah, that's right. And I think that um, you know, your your note about glory is really good. I mean, so it, you you cannot you have to be blind not to look at the world and see the glory of God's Creation, right, and the glory in the the specific nature of the things that God gives. I mean, it's a it's a, it's a wonder. I mean, I I get really excited about these things, but like it's a wonder <laughs> to see, you know, a, an oak tree outside my window and having having imagined how this grew from this tiny little acorn, not not accidentally, but according to God's according to God's design. That's what He gave it for, and it's that glory that He has written all over the world, which you know when we consume according to our flesh or when we you know, kind of like wantonly disregard the nature of things or God's design for things, which it, this is part of what the problem we were talking about earlier, industrialization or consumerism or materialism or convenience. What it all invites is like this idea that I just don't have to think about these things anymore. Right. I, so I don't have to I don't have to think about God's design when it comes to food, because here it is in front of me. I'm just going to eat it when there's really no part of a Christian's life that shouldn't be that shouldn't be spent considering the glory of God in whatever it is that's before me and how and how these things glorify God. And also how because of the corrupted nature of our world and our own sinful nature, there's there, there are all kinds of things that aren't the way that they're supposed to be and how creation is groaning under the pains of this. And so when we contribute to that, like when we disregard the nature of a thing, when we treat it with contempt or use it for wanton, uh, destructive purposes, how we're adding to the burden that creation is already suffering as it waits for uh, the redemption of God.
1: Well, since we're talking about Romans 8 already, we might as well flip forward to that. (laughs) (laughs) Might as well. (laughs) Might as well. We've we've already blown that wide open. But I mean, because in Romans 8, Paul is talking about now in the New Testament, again, when I guess you could say the dominion has shifted yet again because animals are no longer given to us for sacrifice, because Christ has been sacrificed, you know, but the the dominion which we have in God has, in a sense, I, I don't know if you want to say it has gone back to what it used to be, or, you know, it's shifted. It's not quite what it was in the Old Testament. But the point being that, as you say, because of our sins, this creation is in bondage. And I think that that is a very helpful way for us to look at quest- these questions that we're considering as well. Because if we, if the creation is in bondage, if the creation is groaning under the effects of sin, if things are broken, even, even the creation itself is looking forward to that day when God will redeem the world entirely, right? It wants to be set free from this bondage. There is something that is wrong with it. But how do we as Christians then approach that bondage you know and you know, what what can we take from it what can we learn from it what should we do kind of a thing
0: yeah i mean this is this is going to sound like a, a like like a, a dreadfully orthodox answer but when you understand when you understand <laughs> when you remember that the like uh the bondage comes you know the subjection to futility is related to the curse is given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? So by the sweat of your brow and thorns and thistles are going to be produced. That's meant to call us to repentance, right? So the starting place when we like in, in thinking about the world and creation's bondage is repentance. Like this is the things are corrupt because of me and because of my sin. And, and so I ought to turn from my sin towards God in faith, and trust in his promises uh, that's that's i mean no, nobody has ever nobody ever wants that answer because it's like this it's like I mean, it's almost like a sunday school answer but that is the life of a christian so uh, you know when <laughs> you can ask these really practical questions like well what food should i eat well start by repenting that's what i that's what i want to <laughs> say to you you know
1: <laughs> sounds good to me <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> well because when we recognize that even the things that we eat are are influenced by sin, you know even the things that we receive as good as gifts as they are are still under the bondage which our sin has placed it under, that should lead us to a certain humility yeah. in the way that we approach issues of husbandry, issues of agriculture, issues of whatever it is in our relationship to the natural world right right Our sin has caused these problems. And Lord knows we can see that, especially with uh, like man-made, you know, disasters, you know, the problem, the disasters that might not have been so bad, but because of human sin are just magnified out of all proportion. You think of, well, even like the intentional disasters too. think of like the, the genocides of the previous century. I'm trying to think of the one like the, the Holodomor, when the Soviets, you know, tried to starve the, the yeah. Ukrainians into submission, right. you know, that... That kind of abuse of of the the natural order is something that is part of that groaning in sin. So yeah, we should absolutely approach these things with a great deal of humility uh, when we try to consider our place in this world.
0: Right. And and yeah. And then and then uh, uh, you know on the heels of that, the the repentant life consists of trying to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So it, it, you know, asking the question, "What has God created these things for?" And how can I, uh, utilize them, care for them in a way that is, is glorifies God and loves my neighbor. Right. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. and, and that, that question, what, you know, how do I love my neighbor in, you know, how I think about animals or how I think about food? How do I love my neighbor? That question is, you know, just woefully absent from, from, you know, a a consumeristic mindset or, or, you know, uh, industrial mindset about food. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, 100%. Yeah. Especially when it comes to something like, you know, how do I approach how I take care of the land or something like that? Right. You know, do I use it as this means to an end, get as much as I can out of it, this industrial mindset to a T? Or do I approach it as, you know, the, as a Christian and say, you know, in repentance, I can come to this and say, what is it that God would have me do in this case? Yeah. Right.
0: And there's there's a, um, I think that what you uncover there is a great deal of foresight which is needed, right? So you don't you don't always know that heavily tilling the land in in central United States is going to lead to a dust bowl. You just you just don't know that that's going to happen necessarily, right? You can't always right. know those things, but we should have our eyes open to you know the th- the incentives and the uh, intentions that we have. Am I going to work this soil? As hard as I can, because I want to make as big a profit as I can, or am I going to work it hard because um, I have people around me who are hungry and I, w- I would like to feed them or I'd like to help them, you know? And what about their children or their grandchildren? What? How am I serving them? Uh, that requires foresight and it requires more wisdom than we could ever have. I mean, this is this is part of the part of the problem, right? So we can't always think through, you know, collateral damage. We can't always think about knock-on effects. We can't do that, but we can try you know and we can be as uh, prudent as as possible and that would be good that would be a, a good way to approach these questions
1: <laughs> well and i mean especially like i'm thinking of in the the early 20th century too when there was a lot of attempt at controlling the economy well lord knows there's still a lot of attempts at controlling the economy what am i saying <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um, attempts, yeah.
1: attempts. Yeah. But especially when there was like destruction of produce, because as a way of artificially stimulating the economy, you know, thinking that we can have foresight in that way, you know, that by actually destroying the gifts, which God had given so that there were, you know, starving people. And yet they were, you know, destroying acres upon acres upon acres of crops, because, you know, this is what's going to help get us going kind of a thing. Right. Well, right. I, I don't think it takes too much to see the the problem with that kind of thinking, you know, th- to think that even with our foresight, we still have to have a great deal of humility yeah. and recognize that, yes, everything which we have comes from God, so we should not take that for granted.
0: Yes. And that's where I think that um, as much as possible, you know, uh, proximity to uh, agriculture is, is a really fruitful thing because there's no better way to, re- to learn that than either to try to raise some food yourself or to you know, be with somebody who's doing that or to, you know, to, to pay attention to their life because there's, there's just no way you can escape that fact when you're trying to raise some crops or when you're trying to grow an animal that, that this depends entirely on God's providence. I, you, can't, you can't make these things happen on your own. It's just not gonna happen.
1: Well, I think the drought this year has proved that beyond all doubt. You know, yeah. you can you can work the land as hard as you want, but if there's no rain, if God doesn't give that rain, there's nothing you can do about it.
0: Yeah, so. it has it has made me really thankful for faithful farmers. There's there's a, a fellow I know who I was talking to him. You know, I'm looking at his corn, and it's you know it's three feet tall, middle August, and it's brown as you know brown as dirt. And I said, "Man, are you going to get anything off of that?" And he goes. I might or I might not, but you know it's not up to me. And I was like, and he was—he's a, a faithful Christian man. Like he was—he wasn't despairing right. about the the sight of his corn. And I'm—I'm I'm so thankful for that because you know I'm—I you know I'm busy with a lot of these things. I've got—I've sort of hob, hobbied around with a lot of agriculture, um, but I, I, my livelihood doesn't depend on it. And I'm so thankful that that there are that there are folks out there whose livelihoods do depend on it, who are also putting their confidence in God, who are trusting in God. This is a wonderful thing. So.
1: Absolutely. As we should all do. But we're at our second break, so we'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken right after this. I'm Zelwyn Heidi here with David Bukes, talking about husbandry. So, David, we left off in the previous section talking about, you know, the humility which we must have in the face of all this. We've talked about the effects of sin. We've talked about dominion. We've talked about a lot of different things, but now we need to kind of drive this all home, you know, to kind of really make it a very practical application and is there a good passage that we might turn to to really, you know, see what it means to care for God's creation in the way that he intends?
0: Yeah, I think that Proverbs you find uh chock full of practical wisdom and some that is even specific to the questions that we've been talking about like what what are the benefits of paying close attention to your domestic economy where your where your food comes from the animals under your care. So Proverbs 27 it gets specifically to this point, and it's amazingly apropos. I mean, it's just like I can't I, I almost can't believe that this is in the Bible, but it's its really nice. So <laughs> so here's what here's what uh, here's what it says. Know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds, for riches do not last forever. And does a crown endure to all generations when the grass is gone and the new growth appears and the vegetation of the mountains is gathered? The lambs will provide your clothing and the goats the price of a field. There will be enough goat's milk for your food, for the food of your household and maintenance for your handmaidens. The uh, the promises there. I mean, and these are you know, Proverbs deals so often in, in generality. So these are things that are generally true. But the the there's this connection between diligence in considering your know, your your fields and your animals, diligence and having enough, being satisfied with what um, with what you need. And I think that, that that's something to pay close attention to here right so we can we can talk about the need for humility and the need to uh, receive everything as a gift from god but god commands us in exercising dominion especially over over our own households to be diligent in using well the things that he has given us so that we can provide and here in proverbs um he's making it clear that when you do that you will have enough you will be you will be satisfied
1: yeah no absolutely and i think I think one way to really kind of connect all of that, too, is that the great message of the book of Proverbs is not these generalities. Like you said, it's not just a general kind of advice so that your life can get along a little bit better. But it is always in the understanding that, you know, it is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. And when we fear him and give him glory in that way. And when we fear him and being diligent in the way that we approach our fields, if we are diligent in the way that we approach our animals, if we are diligent in the dominion which he has given to us and you know, and show that kind of fear towards him, then yes, things will in fact be better for us, right? That this is that God will send his blessing upon it and he will give us the things that we need, whether that be clothing, whether that be food, whether that be shelter, whatever it may be, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, and the, and the fear of the Lord uh, besides, you know, the all-important trust in God for our salvation and for our whole life, it it also keeps that diligence from becoming, you know, a cult of diligence. It keeps it from becoming, you know, from from entering into any of the perversions that we talked about earlier. Cuz you could imagine, you know, you can think about you could describe industrialization as a as a kind of diligence, but it's a it's a it's a diligence that has no fear of God. That does not fear yeah. God.
1: To satanic diligence, in that sense, yes,
0: yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> let's, right. let's put let's put none too yeah. fine a bow on it here. <laughs>
0: let's go, I like that, <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, it is in that sense because it is only interested in the output, as you said, it is not operating with the fear of the Lord, it is not operating with these kinds of understandings, it's just simply treating things as a means to an end. But that's not what keeping you know, knowing well the condition of your flocks is about. It is knowing that you know when you take care of those individual animals, when you tend to the needs of this specific sheep, as it were, or this specific goat, then you are doing what God wants you to do. And when you are diligent in that way, not treating that goat as a just an object for you to use according to your pleasure, but as a gift from God, then we will receive the blessings from God. And you know, get the the due due reward of our diligence, right? Yeah,
0: and I th- you can see this interesting contrast in that passage between these uh, real tangible goods, right? So animals and fields and crops that that is contrasted with riches and a crown, right? So um, the when you think about animals and crops as mere commodities, commodities, right? Just like easily mm-hmm. substituted for with cash, then you you are not going to think about their their care. Or their long-term sustenance, or um, what it means to maintain them from generation to generation. You're just going to think about exchange, and while that sometimes is what's required, sometimes you have to exchange them. Nonetheless, what God is, you know, what God is inviting us to do here is to not put our hope in things that that have the appearance of eternity, right? So, cash looks like it's going to just sit there forever, but instead, to uh, to think about the sort of temporal, transitory nature of things and care for them as they're in front of us and 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 thank god along the way that they're able to provide for us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But speaking of goats, <laughs> <laughs> why don't why don't you tell us and maybe as a way of kind of bringing us to the end of this discussion, you know, let's let's think very practically, you know, what kind of insights have you found from your particular flock and knowing well their condition.
0: <laughs> how does yeah. and how
1: does and how does that help us?
0: Yeah, uh, you know one of the things that I that I have learned. So, um, so we have a, a parsonage here, and uh, in the back there's about we have about an, a half an acre that of woods, and we have kept some some milking goats back there, and a flock of laying hens, as well as a handful of pigs, which we have butchered in the fall. One of the one of the things that I think is astounding, and this would be a really practical takeaway uh, that I, my, would be my encouragement to everybody. We kind of have this idea that there are lots of things that we're just not capable of doing, That like we're not fit to do them. And this goes hand in hand with a lot of other things like, you know, the world tells you you're not fit to educate your children. Well, it's just nonsense, right? The world, the world kind of tells you you're not fit to provide food for yourself. Maybe you can't like in a moment or overnight, you know, replace your entire grocery budget with food that you have produced. <laughs> But you, you are totally capable of exercising dominion and cultivating the ground and having something come forward. I mean, the word fitly position has been that gardening is right. Gardening is, is one of the most wholesome things that you can do in this life, right? Absolutely. <laughs> we have a whole episode on it. So yeah, yeah. Now, and, and I think, you know, so I'm, I'm very fortunate because, you know, nobody cares unless the pigs start to smell too badly. Nobody cares that, that I've got these animals here and not, not everybody benefits from that kind of a, a setting it's, you know, un- interestingly, there are lots of, dif- when we lived in the Western suburb of Chicago, we couldn't have chickens in our backyard. But if you lived in the city of Chicago, like if you live in Cook County, you can have chickens. Um, so, you mm. know, some, sometimes the possibilities are available. And even just the exercise of thinking through what it's going to take to get some animals and take care of them, what's it going to cost? Um, how are you going to do it well? Right? Because that's always kind of the the tricky thing is to jump into something and not be prepared for it. And then you see the animal suffer or you experience losses and you realize that you weren't diligent the way that you were supposed to be. But just, just, just engaging that exercise is really, really valuable. And you learn all kinds of lessons along the way that you, you didn't know, you didn't know beforehand, you know, things like How animals are not humans, for one thing, right? So you can't reason with them, you can't, you can't convince them to do things. Nonetheless, they have behaviors that are very predictable, which you can, you can bank on. And so when you're paying attention to them, when you're actually, you know, when you're thinking about them and uh, trying to do what's best for them and, and for, you know, their condition. You can you can actually do it, you know, if you pay attention. But if you're not paying attention, or if you're just going to be lazy about it, then it's not going to work out. And so it requires something of you, that responsibility and that diligence, and that's really good. It evokes that out of you, and I think that that's a a very profitable thing for anyone.
1: Yeah, and I I, I realize that there are listeners um, in our audience who, as you say, live in very urban areas that are probably are not going to be able to do some of these things. What might you say to say someone who is totally Urban city forbids even chickens. Like, there's nothing they can do. What Well, how could they still benefit from something like this?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I think undoubtedly there's a farmer somewhere nearby. And I think it, this sounds trite, I know, but like, just go and meet the farmer and talk to him and offer to lend a hand and find out what his farm looks like and how things work. I mean, kids love this stuff, right? It's no, it's no wonder, you know, take your kids to the farm and show them what animals look like. And then explain to them that there's a connection between this cow and that steak or that burger that you ate. (laughs) And, and then also engage all of the like confusing questions. So, I mean, I'd show, I'd say, don't just watch the cow in the pasture, but show up on slaughter day, you know, like I think cultivating relationships like that, again, this isn't always I'm, maybe it's not always possible. It's certainly not always easy, but I think it is something worth sort of looking, looking for. I mean, w- we have in, in our congregations connections to, to farmers. And I think that those are, those are uh, worth cultivating. Those connections are worth cultivating so that we can gain a better understanding or appreciation. Even if you can't, you don't have the opportunity to do this yourself. That, that'd be my first suggestion, you know, find a farmer, talk to him.
1: Sure no i think that works well well and i mean especially you mentioned like with the kids and even on on butchering day that sort of thing i think there is a great benefit to that i mean i know that we tend to think of it as being very morbid we don't want to for some reason we want to skip that step i don't know why but and i mean there obviously there's grotesque ways of approaching it that we don't want to to to, to go into but there are you know helpful ways because i know that like uh, when we ha- got my flock of chickens that we have right now, we have eight chickens um, that, in a hen house that I built here on, on the property of the parsonage, and we get more eggs than we can eat from them. So, But we had a rooster originally, but we never intended to keep the rooster because we just don't really have the space for having a whole bunch of chickens, and we can't really let them get out and about too much because we're in a kind of a wooded area. And there's a lot of coyotes around. We were afraid that we'd lose a lot of the chickens fairly frequently. That being said, I remember that when the rooster finally got to a size where we were able to butcher him, you know, my son helped me with that process. And I think that that is a beneficial thing for him because it shows that, yes, you know, this rooster gave its life so that we could eat it. Although admittedly, it was the smallest bird I've ever eaten. <laughs> it's a soup bird. That's what those, that's, those it's are soup, soup birds. It's a soup bird. Yeah. yeah, it was ridiculous. I it, I still can't believe how little meat we got <laughs> out of that bird. But um, but it, it was one of those things where to see that connection that, you know, that this gift, which God has given to us in this animal is now being given, you know, is now giving its life for us so that we might continue. I think it, it helps build that appreciation for God's provision and for his providence in general.
0: Yeah, right? and I I I think that there are all kinds of bad habits of thinking that get corrected along the way. What, one of the things I uh experienced was we we had these pigs in our in our in our yard and uh you know pigs are they're not the friendliest animals. You could they can be kind of they can be kind of like certain breeds you can get them to come and eat out of your hand or whatever these were not that kind of breed they were just mean and they reach a size where you know if you fell down in the pen they would eat you because you're just another you're just another snack for them so like the rule was you know you can't you can't you can't go into the pen with the pigs kids stay out of the pen with the pigs and and we would talk about the pigs in this kind of like well we were kind of disgusted by them Oh, those those stinky pigs right and and my kids we all sort of started joking about how well we can't wait for butcher day because we hate those pigs we hate how they smell or whatever and um <laughs> and i and, and, and th- this sounds really hokey i know it does but i just you know i'm sharing my story here, is that one that's, so the uh, oh, <laughs> the uh the thing is um i realized that that's the wrong way to th- i don't want them to, i don't want to butcher the pig i don't want to slaughter the pig because we hate it in fact that's not what we're doing at all and when it came to butcher day um the first pig that we butchered You know, the, the strategy that I learned was a 22 rifle, you know, shoot it in the forehead. There's a spot where you can get their tiny little brains and you stun it and you stick it. And, um, I used, I used a hollow point bullet and instead of us, instead of a solid, a solid bullet. And so it didn't, it didn't go down on the first shot. And, Mm -hmm. um, the guy from whom i learned how to butcher a pig his one his aphorism about this is the only thing harder than shooting a pig once is shooting a pig only twice and so this is the thing you know <laughs> here's this here's this poor pig and it was dreadful it was dreadful you know having this right. pig improperly killed and my kids are standing and watching it and and we we learned this this valuable lesson about how on the one hand we're not we're not killing this animal because we hate it. We're, like you said, killing this animal because it's going to provide food for us. And also that means that we want to do it well. Like when we don't do it well, when we don't treat it with respect, when we when if I'm careless, if I'm, you know, I thought I could get by with what I had instead of doing it properly, the animal suffers and we feel the weight of that in in ourselves. And that's it's good to have felt that weight. So now we're not going to make that same mistake again. And for, for the sake of my kids, it's really, I I'm so thankful for that lesson. Now, you you talked about morbidity and this is, this is the, <laughs> this is our, this is our life. You know, after butcher day, like I, I look around my property and there's, there's stuffed animals hanging all over our property because like animals, <laughs> animals are being butchered left and right. But, um, but, but I, you know, I, I can look at it and see it as a really wholesome thing because I'm, I'm taking on myself the responsibility of teaching my kids to do to, to, think about animals properly. And that's, that's, I'll, I'll, you know, it's better than having Disney teach them about animals. I'll just say that I shouldn't have named Disney explicitly. I'm sorry. That, that was, that's <laughs> twice, <my mistake. laughs> yeah, twice I know. in one episode. Uh,
1: no, but I mean, the, the point you make is, is a good one. And I think, especially even with our mistakes, as you say, our mishandling of God's creation, there is something to be learned from that. You know, that even when we don't do things the way we should, It teaches us a certain humility. It teaches us to respect it the next time around so that, yeah, as you say, we do it the right way so that we can make it as painless as possible if it's butchering or just treating them in a a generally good way so that they are not stressed out, you know, all these kinds of things. I mean, we can learn from our mistakes and in repentance in that way, come to treat God's creation in the way that he would have it treated. Yeah, and I think absolutely. I think
0: that um, for even for folks who can't you know do this stuff on their own, don't have room for it, just learning about it, it is surprising. You you, you will be surprised to discover how practical it is, and how many practical considerations go into actually butchering an animal. It's not a purely pra- uh, mechanical process. Um, right. There, it, it it's an art form. Recognizing that gives you some contact with how this is something something unique that God has created um for a specific purpose that we should we should pay attention to. So
1: yeah. Well, I know that you know, I've been around, you know, uh, slaughterhouses. I've been around um we have members of the congregation who butcher, you know, I've even had a hand in a little bit. I, we don't do as much butchering as as you apparently are <laughs> out there in Minnesota <laughs> killing everything that comes across the property, but <laughs> but I mean it it is it is a a helpful thing because i think when you see the the giving of life in that way so that we might live it really does emphasize the the connection which we have to god's providence and to his gifts which he has, has given to us yeah and i mean I'm, i maybe since you're you you've shared enough stories i'll I'll share a little bit here just to kind of wrap up this episode you know i grew up on a ranch i've been around cattle I've been around pigs, although I don't know what kind of pigs you're raising. If you have such wild pigs, are they like boars or something? Or
0: They're, They were just mean-spirited. That's what they were. They were mean-spirited. Okay. Because <laughs> yeah. usually the
1: pigs we had were fat and lazy, and they liked mm. to be scratched. So, you know, real real friendly kind of animals. But, you know, I, I remember I was, in, I was heavily involved in 4-H growing up. Um, I don't know if that's a big thing out in Minnesota or not. I think it is, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But I remember the first time... When I had to sell an animal that I had raised, the the, the attachment which I felt to that, you know, the, the connection which I had with that animal and the the sadness which you initially feel from having to part with that connection that is being made. And maybe it's, maybe some people might still feel like, you know, oh, we're just being heartless about this. You know, you know, we don't really care about these animals. Otherwise, why would we kill them? You hear that argument made sometimes. But even with that connection, I think it, it teaches you something of what it means to care for God's creation. Yeah, there is a certain hardness which we have to have because of the reality of sin, because of the fact that we have to give a life so that we might live. But at the same time, recognizing that, you know, that when we cared for this animal, when it became, you know, something that was connected to us, now we can give thanks as Christians and say that this care and this concern, which we have put into this animal, has now has now been given back to us in the gift that God has given. So I, I think it is something that we should always give thanks for because you know this is part of what it means for God to provide for us. Amen. So
0: any any final thoughts? No, I think um, I'm I'm really grateful for the conversation. I think it's uh, it's worth thinking through all of these all of these things, especially in a world that wants to, you know, like with, like with everything else, teach us what they think is good or what, what a nature is. And um, it's good for us to heed what God's word says and return to it always.
1: Very good. This has been a Word fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard, please check us out, WordFitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Zell and Heidi here today with David Bukes. God love you and God bless.
0: So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, God created him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree, in which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed, to you it shall be for meat. And to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 through 31.